there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fear, fiery fire, furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what are the most common questions that come to mind? In my mind and in most, when we suffer greatly is, where is God? Or if God is there, is he good? Is he getting some sick pleasure out of our pain? Or is he just maybe not powerful enough to do something about it? Maybe God does care about these things, but he's just not near. At minimum, though, lately, for me, I have not been questioning God's goodness or his power, but I've been questioning how long I can stand it. Anybody with me? You're not questioning if God loves you or if he's good, but, but maybe your question is, I can't take it anymore. Just one more straw will break my back, God. I cannot take another trial, another bad news, another bad headline, another discouraging text, and that's how I've been feeling, and this text has been life for me, and I trust life for you today, and even more life as I preach it to you, because this text has only gone just a few inches deep into my heart. This passage today is one that helps us understand that God is with us in the fire. He's not passively, distantly Watching us while we are in the fire, throwing us nice attaboys and some cliches to get us through. He actually walks right into the fire with us. It answers some really tough questions, but it also asks us a tough question. This passage demands us as God's people in all places and all times ask us ourselves this question. To what extent... Will you be faithful to God? To what extent will you be faithful to God? In other words, at what point will you say enough is enough? God, I love you and all, but I can't go that far. At what extent will you be faithful to worship God alone? Though this is one of the most recognizable stories if you grew up in church, 
This is actually one of the richest theological passages I have ever studied to prepare to preach. I'm so excited for this chapter. If any of you guys are on Facebook, you guys have seen me hype it up because I'm so excited. I feel like God has been all over this passage as he's been speaking to me for the last couple of weeks. And I love that. I love that the word of God is not something you can just tap to the brim, to the bottom, and you're like, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've already read that. Like, I've read Daniel 3 so many times, I don't even know how to count. And yet, I've, I've not been this blown away till today. So I am so excited to go into this word with you. This passage is going to teach us a lot of things, but especially three big questions, or three big points. It's going to teach us about what the world is like. Oh, I, okay, the screens are down. I literally was going to come up and say, guys, this is the first Sunday. We've not had one technical difficulty. All right, God is able to fix that. And even if he doesn't, I'll be, I will be patient. But there's three lessons that this passage especially covers is what is the world like? It also teaches us a lesson of what is God like? And then it teaches us what God's people should do in all places and times. All right, let's jump right into it. We're going to read chapter, uh, verse 1 through 7. But before we do, hopefully you have your, your Bible because the screen's technology has failed us again. You guys have not. Technology has. Before we read 1 through 7, I want you to look at your Bible and note how many times you see the word image and the phrase set up. It's significant, and I'll show you why. But I want you to keep that in mind, those two, that word image and then the phrase set up. So let's read. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the ba- province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the Satraps and all, you guys can read, all those people gathered for the dedication of the image of King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed out loud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people, peoples, heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, if you got lost in those five, in those seven verses, essentially, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden statue. Babylon is often represented as the, as the kingdom of gold, while Greece will later on come on, would be more like bronze, but golden statue of maybe a god or probably himself. And when we see these, this term, these um, 70 cubits, is that what it says? Is about nine stories or eight-story building. Okay, So try to visualize that in your mind. Imagine an eight-story building that's a statue, a golden statue. And on a very flat plane, this is what the plane is, 
where tons of people can gather, and it's at the middle, and there's a worship band with all kinds of instruments that none of you guys have ever seen, except maybe a bagpipe. And then the moment it's played, everybody worships, okay? But if you don't worship, you're going to get snitched on, and you're going to be thrown into a burning fire. So, why is this repetition that I had you look at significant, image, and set up? Well, general rule when you study the Bible is that when words are repeated over and over and over again, they're on purpose. There's a, there's a reason behind that. And one thing that we can see is that if you zoom out of the context and think about last chapter that we just read, chapter 2. What do we see in chapter 2? Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is shaking in his boots because he has this prophetic dream that he cannot shake and he knows there's something to it. And remember, in that dream, he's in, he's a statue. And he gets torn down and another part takes his place. And another, and another, and finally the kingdom of God reigns for all, represented by this stone. Now, you can go back if you missed those. Those are worthy sermons to listen to as you want to go into chapter 2. But it's interesting that after all that he went through, he's now building a statue, right? And, and you could even wonder, if, if you read that, you could just tap him on the shoulder and it's like, hey, king, did you, did you, did you read that last ch chapter? Do you, I mean, do you, this is not going to turn out well. And yet, something inside of King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to reverse this prophecy, you guys have probably seen a movie where there's a prophecy and the person tries to reverse the prophecy. And what do they call that? Self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because their actions actually end up to create the very prophecy that was told. And King Nebuchadnezzar seems to, to, to create this statue in part to try to, to, to ward off the future. And then maybe another part is trying to get all the peoples to be unified because one of the great fallings of... Uh, of empires is that there's so many people groups that you conquer and there's so much division that you need to unify them under one religion so let's get all these peoples to worship one god one image and that could unify our people we see the roman empire doing this later on with imperial worship of the emperors and we see lots of stories about how the church weathered through that storm but also when you think of this word image what does that sound like I will make them in my image. Does that sound familiar? See, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to be like God. He's trying to create things in his own image. He's trying to be a counterfeit God. This word set up, creation. It's very utterly clear that Nebuchadnezzar is the one, and he's the one trying to make it happen. It also reminds us of Genesis chapter 11. Remember, last time I preached, Genesis 11, it was connected in chapter 1 of Daniel. The plains of Shinar, in the land of Shinar, is where ba Babel happened, right? What is Babel? Babel is this, this spirit, this posture to say, let's make and set up something great for us. And everybody will look at us and think how great we are. It's the spirit of Babylon that permeates throughout this whole book. This Babylonian heart that says, it's all about me and self-sufficiency and great am I. So Neb is trying to be like God. He's trying to create an image and be like Babel. And man has always been like this since from the garden till the present day. And whether it's glory, control, or power, the reality is all of us kind of want to be like God. 
That is the first temptation, isn't it? If you eat this fruit, you will be what? Like God. The temptation wasn't the fruit. It was really what the fruit would bring. Just like money isn't ultimately the temptation many of us struggle with. It's what money can bring. And so the king is trying to do something similar that many kings have always done. And some theme that we're going to see in Daniel is that whatever you see in Daniel is not what has happened, but what will always happen. What happens in Daniel is what has always happened from Genesis till now and is happening right now. These same attitudes and these same patterns happen right now on our current events. What has happened in Daniel will always happen. And that's why this is so important for God's people in all times and all places. Now, let's look at verse 6 again. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast down, cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Make no mistake, this is about worship. This is about worship. Nebuchadnezzar is after their worship. He is being a satanic influence, trying to steer God's people to worship another. This is not merely going through, through just cultural norms and jumping through hoops. He wants their hearts. Guess how many times the word worship is repeated throughout this chapter? Just throw out a number. Eleven. Close. I was scared the moment I asked that someone's going to say like 35. And I was like, oh, dang, it's not that much. But 11 times, again, remember when it's repeated, a word is repeated, the, the author is trying to, hey, hey, there's something here. This chapter is all about who has your heart. And throughout the book of Daniel, we're going to see that Satan is trying to create counterfeit something. For everything that God has, there is a counterfeit that Satan will produce. So there's going to be a counterfeit kingdom, a counterfeit king, counterfeit God, counterfeit worship band. Counterfeit hell. And God's people throughout generations and at all times until Jesus makes all things new will be offered this counterfeit. And it will be appealing. And it will have short-term benefits. And Daniel is such a book for us because it helps us resist this counterfeit. That's why this book is so important. I'm so excited we're going through it because we are offered every day the counterfeit. That's why it's so important for us to be able to recognize it. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound and list all these instruments, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Actually, uh, these slides should be up there. Verse 7 should be up there. Notice the language in verse 7. All peoples nations, languages. Does that sound familiar in Revelation? Does it not bring up a, ring a bell? This is the worship that's due only for God. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to be a counterfeit God. And look, he has a worship band to go with it. He's trying to get worship. Again, I want to emphasize this is that we all want to be more like God than we would like to admit. In fact, David Helm says something that just cuts me to the heart. Check this quote out. Our, it's not up there, okay. Our tendency 
is to identify with three friends of Daniel. Those courageous young, young men who, as we will see, resisted the call to worship anything other than God. Yet, if we are honest, we all should primarily identify with the condition of the king. For as with him, the architecture of our own soul rises to the heavens in self-adulation. And if given our way, we too are tempted to call upon everyone within earshot to pay respect to our deeds. See, the, the danger is when we read the Bible, especially in America, we've been so conditioned to read ourselves into the text. And the reality is we're often not the good guy when we read the text. We can relate often more with the bad guy. And now you and I are too clever to want people to bow down to a, a statue of you or for people to bow down to you. I'm too clever for that. But you know what I want? I want to make sure you quote me and not somebody else, right? Have you ever been in a meeting at work or in a situation where someone says, oh yeah, so-and-so came up with the idea, and you're like, it was me, right? And you have the moment to either let it slide, right? Those little moments there show this desire for attention, a desire for adulation. Other times, I can see jealousy arising in me if someone is praised for something that I feel like I'm good at. I shared this story with one, t one time with, with you guys in the past where we were watching a, like a little sermon jam clip of Matt Chandler. And Joanna was like, man, he is so good. And immediately I'm like, wait, are you saying I'm not good? Right? What is that? That's so insecure, right? As if for him to be good, that means I'm not good. Or for him to be anything, I have to be better, right? Like what are those little signs? Those are little signs to show a deeper, sicker part of my heart that wants self-glory. And if we give ourselves a pass and think, oh, I'm not like Nebuchadnezzar, th then you miss out on great healing that God wants to bring because he wants to deliver you of meism because that's one of the worst things you can have. That's actually the worst thing that you can have. And that's the most loving thing is for God to help rip that out of your heart. Let's continue. Verse 8. 8 through 15. Okay? Let me just paraphrase what's going on. So the Babylonian nobility and the great advisors and magicians, they, they catch word. They see that Daniel and his friends are not bowing down like everyone else's. And here's their chance. Here are these foreign slaves who have leapfrogged over them to get the highest promotions in the land, and here's their chance to take them down and get some brownie points with the king. Look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This should be on the screen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men... O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice the sucking up language they're using. O king! But also notice they're using trigger words because they probably know how insecure Nebuchadnezzar is. Look at this language they use. You appointed them. They pay no attention to you or the image that you have set up. They know exactly how to get this guy to fly off the handle. But now consider the courage of these three to stand up, to stay standing while everyone bows down. I was trying to think of an illustration. Have you guys ever been at a play or a ceremony and you're just relaxing 
or maybe you don't even want to be there, right? And all of a sudden, someone stands up, and they start that standing ovation. You know what I'm saying? And you're like, oh, come on, really? And then another person stands up in another row, and then there's someone else you respect, and then you're like, oh, shoot, and you get up. You know, you get your lazy butt up, and you're clapping. And then the next pressure comes. Remember, what, what is it? Who's going to be the first to sit down? Right? You guys know this pressure? I, I, I hate it. I hate it. I hate that pressure. And I usually give in to the pressure. There's been only a few times where I'm like, hmm, I'm not doing it. And in that situation, the pressure is awkwardness. Maybe social ostracism. But the situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, is in a completely different realm. Imagine the giant statue again in your head, and thousands, most likely, of people surrounding it, music going crazy, everybody bows, thousands bowing, if you could just imagine some of the pictures you, or videos you've seen of Mecca, all these people simultaneously bowing, and then three are standing. Imagine the pressure. Imagine thousands of eyes immediately on you. Some looking with horror, some looking with shock, some looking with disgust, and maybe some fellow Jews looking with longing if they just had some of the courage that they had. Because it's most likely there were many Jews in that crowd too who bowed. Imagine the pressure. And I can even imagine some people going, Psst, hey, Shadrach, hey, hey, God will forgive you. Just bow. Just don't bow in your heart. God understands. Or, or maybe someone else saying, psst, psst, hey, I'm a fellow Jew. Uh, um, you, you need to keep your position. Uh, it's too strategic. You can fight for God's people on the inside. Just bow this one time. Can you imagine the different pressures they would feel? What would you do if you were in that situation? It's easier to stand for a cause on Facebook or Twitter you're really in no harm. Maybe, maybe an employer will see it one day. But imagine thousands of people and with a death threat hanging over you, and you stand while everyone sits or bows. What would you do in that situation? Really, think about it. Don't get yourself off the hook. Oh, yeah, I would stand. Well, how, how do you know that you would stay standing? What, does your life look like one that would suggest that you would stand? The only way you would know is that you continually do things in this world that are countercultural, even when it's super uncomfortable, super inconvenient, and sometimes extremely painful. So if you tell me that that's your life, in every sphere, that you repeatedly choose, going against the grain of the culture and the world, then I would say, yeah, you probably would keep standing. But if the moment you're tired, you give in to porn, or the moment... You come home and things are not your way. You, you, you go nuts and you're angry. The moment you want to see something online that, that you just shrink back because you're like, I'm, not, I'm afraid of saying that because people will be judging me. Like that, those are all little suggestions of what we would do in that moment. Now, I'm not going to beat on you because there's a lot of hope here. But these are important questions for us to ask ourselves. We easily get ourselves off the hook when we read these stories. Uh, let's look at the response of the king. You could imagine what his king, the, 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 the response of this king, verse 13, knowing how insecure and how arrogant he is. Then Nebuchadnezzar, 
in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before him. Notice that word rage, furious rage. Rage is often the, the natural emotion that comes out when we don't get what we think we deserve. But the king thinks himself a reasonable guy. Plus, these three Jews have been super helpful for him. Remember, they were seven times or ten times more helpful than all the other people. He wants to keep them if he can, even though he's really angry. So look at verse 14. Just to clarify, are none of the slides working now? Oh, weird. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, It is true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, yada, 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 and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. And listen to this. Who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? You guys catch that? <laughs> who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? So arrogant. And Neb thinks he's something, and God is going to show him that he's nothing. And that all of his perceived strength is an illusion. Let's see how they answer to his menacing threats. This is one of my favorite verses in, all Bible, in the whole Bible. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, when you read that, depending on the translation you're reading of the Bible, it can sound like kind of like a slap in the face. Some people take it like a sarcastic, we don't even need to answer you, bro. Or, in my reading, because the way they normally relate to those in authority throughout Daniel, I think it's a respect. It's saying, hey, we, we don't have an answer for it. You're right, we, we didn't bow. Like, you're not wrong. We, 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 we're, not, we're not listening to you. <laughs> but look at the next two verses. These are the ones that are so sweet. Verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But would you... Uh, you can't read it. Can you read it if you have your ESV? If you, if you have ESV? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. I love how Eugene Peterson makes... Verse 18, a little clear for our audience. He says this, But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Essentially, they're saying, listen, God can rescue us. It's not hard. He can do it. And we're hoping he will. <laughs> but even if he doesn't, we ain't worshiping you. We know who our God is. Our worship is not based off of our circumstances. The scary truth to me is that I think many Christians in the West would fail at a similar test. We serve God as long as he serves us. The moment our true God or idols are tested, we abandon God. And if you want to know what your idol is, don't assume you don't have one because we all struggle with different idols. All of us, including me. Is just ask yourself this question. What is an area in your life that you are likely to question the goodness of God if it doesn't turn out the way you want? 
What's an area of your life that you are likely to question the goodness of God if it doesn't turn out the way you hope or pray for? Any slides coming up? I, I have a thing. It's just the headings now. There it is. Here's something you can ask yourself. If God doesn't give you blank, you question his goodness in abandoned worship. What is that thing? What is that fill in the blank? God, I love you, but if you don't give me this. See, but those who have found God as their greatest treasure can say, even though it's hard at times, God is able to give me a spouse, but even if he doesn't, I'll still worship him. God is able to give me a child, and even if he doesn't, I will still worship him. God is able to give me a job finally, but even if he doesn't, I will still worship him. God is able to heal me of the sickness that's hurt me for so many years, but even if he doesn't, I will still worship him. What is your God is able to that you need to declare to the Lord today? I encourage you to, to write it out in your journal or, or type it out in your phone. God, you are able to blank. But even if you don't, I will love you, trust you, and worship you. What is that blank that you need to freshly trust God with? Trust you with my job, trust you with my family, trust you with the salvation of one of my kids, trust you with blank, and even if you don't, I will still worship you. This is a good exercise for us. God, even if you don't deliver me from debilitating depression, I will still worship you. Whatever it is. Now, you can imagine the king had a problem with this response. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed. Against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My, my sense is that his appearance changing means that he kind of had like this smile before. Hey, hey, let's give you another chance. But now he's like, oh, it's over. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, which I take not as literally they can measure seven more times, but so hot, so as hot as humanly as possible, and seven representing perfection often in the Bible. Just incredibly hot. Scholars are, are imagining thousands of thousands of degrees. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace, burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, a flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Now there's a lot here. Imagine this scene. The fire is, is, is increased. The heat is, the furnace is heated to match the same heat of the fury of Nebuchadnezzar. And I don't think that this fire is random, even though Nebuchadnezzar may just have picked it. I think God has a greater purpose that he's kind of pointing to. Throughout the Bible, God uses both figuratively and literally fire is a very important agent in the, throughout his story. It does three things primarily. It's judgment for some. It's refinement for his people. 
and it's a revealer for all. Judgment, refinement, and revealer fire often in the Bible. In this story, you see two of them at least. Judgment for some. Look at verse 22. The fire is so hot, the furnace is so hot, that the beefy, strong, mighty men who are carrying up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are literally burned even though they don't even fall into the fire. They don't even get into it, and yet the heat is so hot, just like if you guys are around a bonfire, right? If you just get, you know there's, there's that sweet spot where it's like just right and cozy. And if you take one step back, it's like cold. But if you take one step for, f- further, it's like, ah, like this hurts. Imagine a fire so intense that just getting near it will kill you. That's the kind of fire we're talking about. And so the fire for the mighty men of Babylon is judgment. And yet, for God's people, it's salvation. It's revealing It's revealing of who his people are. So as the mighty men burn, God's saying, those are not mine. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, he's saying, those are mine. And they got my protection. Now, I I also mentioned that fire is often refiner for believers. I want to remind you, and this is super important, just because you are in a fire does not mean that God's not pleased with you. In fact, You may be in a fire because you are pleasing to him. You may be in a fire because you have been faithful to him. I think so often I can assume that when a fire is happening in my life, what did I do wrong, God? And sometimes he's like, nothing. Nothing, Sam. Look at 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, I love this. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Peter says, do not be surprised. And what do I often do? I'm surprised. (laughs) I'm like, what's going on here? This doesn't match. And yet, Scripture promises fires are a normal thing for faithful believers. So don't be surprised, church. In fact, rejoice, Scripture says. Because this is an opportunity for you to show to the world and to the courts of heaven, to all, everybody, That Jesus is your treasure, and he's enough. This is an opportunity for his glory to shine through you in your suffering, in the fire. So, fire destroys you or refines you. The fire shows that you are one of his or shows you that you're not. The way you respond. It either makes you more like Jesus or it reveals that you never really loved Jesus. Fire is a powerful thing. There's a famous hymn that we sang earlier, and we're going to sing again. Up here, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Think 2 Corinthians 12. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross, and dross is impurities and metals, to consume with fire, and thy gold to refine. God has good design over the flames that we go through, church. Let's keep going. There's so much more in this text, and I'm running out of time. So verse 24. I love, I couldn't figure out a title, two titles, the Son of God delivers or the Flames of Fellowship. Both are good. All right, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to the council, whoa, wait, wait, didn't we throw in three guys? Like, you know, not that smart. Three guys, right? And they're like, yeah, O king. Yeah, true. You're awesome. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Notice this phrase, appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Who is this figure walking in the fire? (laughs) Throughout the book of Daniel, we see that the Babylonians often have theories about what God is like. And you hear it. Now, just because it's in Scripture doesn't mean it's true. We have to look critically at what they think. As you see throughout Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is in a process of understanding who God, Yahweh, really is. So he's going to say a lot of things, and he speaks very quickly. Just because he says it doesn't mean it's true. But he has, from his perception, an understanding that there's something freaking going on in there. There's another person when we only threw in three, and that person seems divine. And they're walking unheard. And he says, son of gods, son of the gods. And I think that's not a coincidence. I think by God's grace, he is being able to see in part something that he cannot see on his own. I remember in chapter 2, the wise men can't answer the king's dream or recreate it or interpret it. Do you remember what one of the wise men says? The thing that the king asks is difficult. This is 2.11. And no one can show it to the king except the gods. What does he say? Whose dwelling is not with flesh. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. See, the Babylonians are constantly almost there, but not there yet. They, they're, they're right, too. Gods don't come in the flesh, except once. As a baby, the Son of God comes down as a baby and incarnates him to our messy world. He enters into it. And what I think is happening here in this fiery furnace is a glimpse of what will happen ultimately in Bethlehem. See, throughout the Old Testament, we hear of things called theophanies and Christophanies. Christophanies literally being Christ appearings. I believe this, in my opinion, is a pre-incarnate Christ. I know that sounds super nerdy, but before he was incarnated, Christ. The Son of God makes little whispers and appearances throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes as the angel of Yahweh, you will see. Angel of the Lord. And I think this is significant. Let me take you to a passage that I've been holding deep, close to my heart. And Joanna has heard me quote it in the shower and quote it around the house as I've been trying to internalize it. Isaiah chapter 43. If you have a Bible, please turn to it. Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. Oh, there it is. Whoa, hey, they're back on. I've been saying this over and over in my heart. And let me just speak it to you. Don't even look at the screen. Let, look at, let me speak as if I am the Lord, as the Lord speaking right to, through me. Church, let me have your eyes if you can. Fear not, for I am with you. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk in the fire, it shall not burn you. And the flame will not consume you. For I am Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I remember reading this note card as I wrote it down this last week or two. And when it said, I have called you by name. You are mine. I felt the Holy Spirit just say, that's you, Sam. I know you. I know everything you're going through. 
more than your wife knows, more than anyone in the church knows, I am right there with you. And notice what he says. He doesn't say, when you walk through the water or through the fire, I'm going to see you. I'm going to think of you. What does he say, church? I'm going to be what? With you. He doesn't just from a distance throw Bible verses at us. He walks right in with us. And notice, he doesn't say if you walk through the fire, if you walk through the water. He says when. This is not a surprise for the believer. This is normal life. You are going to go through fire and you're going to go through water, but God's promise is that he'll be with you. On the screen, I'll say this. God is able to get you over anything, but often or usually, he's going to get you through it. There's that famous going on a bear hunt. We're going on a bear hunt, right? And it says, uh-oh, we can't go over it. Can't go, oh, can't go under it. We got to go what? Through it. And sometimes he will get you over it and get you under it. And we have no clue of how many different things that God in his providence has prevented in your life that we never actually had to experience. He gets you over it, he gets you under it. And sometimes you're going through a calamity or a crisis, and right away, he heals it. Right away, he delivers you right away. But most often in the scriptures and in our lives, he's going to get us through it. He's going to hold our hands through it. He's going to take the shots as he holds us. Often I beg God to stop something. Please, Lord, stop this. It hurts too much. And he does sometimes. But more often he says, not yet, son. But I'll get you through this. Remember, it's not never when God says no. It's just not yet. Because remember, when he comes back, all things will be made right. No more suffering, no more pain, no more hurt. So it's just not now. But until that day, I'm going to hold your hand through it, Sam. I'm going to walk into the fire with you. And it's also important to know it's not wrong to ask for it to stop. Paul prays three times for some thorn to be removed. Jesus, in the garden, asks for another way. You can ask, and you ought to ask. But don't be surprised if he says, not yet. But he'll say, I'll be with you. I'll be with you wherever you go. Church, you may be going through the worst furnace right now, but know that he is with you. He will strengthen you in your weakness. You are not alone. And do you know why I can say that? Is that this. This is it. God doesn't just help us. He doesn't just encourage us. He gets right in our mess. And though all of us have sinned and deserve punishment, all of us, every single person here deserves punishment. We deserve our own fiery furnace because of a rebellion towards God. Yet instead of throwing us into hell, an eternal furnace, God makes a way for us to be saved. So imagine this picture. Imagine this picture. You are bound with chains so tight, and there's angels on the right and left of you. And these angels are escorting you to this eternal burning flame. And as you are marching up to your fateful death, out of nowhere, Jesus, the Son of God, comes. And he talks to the angels. You don't know what he's saying to them. 
But all of a sudden, you notice your, your chains come off. And they take the chains off of you and they put them on Jesus. And then they take Jesus and they throw him into the fire as you walk away unharmed and bewildered. That's the insanity of the gospel. That, that Jesus is forsaken. Jesus is burned. Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve temporarily so that we can be eternally accepted. See, but for Jesus on the cross, he does not have the Father with him, does he? He's utterly alone. Utterly alone. So he goes, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabatati. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, church, why can we have confidence that he is with us in the fire? The only reason why we can have confidence is because he was left abandoned on the cross. He was abandoned, he was burned. He suffered, and because he does, he can sympathize with our brokenness, and he can enter into our furnaces daily because he took our eternal furnace. And that offer is for every one of you in here if you're not trusting in him, and it's an offer for anybody you know that Jesus took a step into the eternal furnace so that everyone could have not a furnace but a home, a family. This is the insanity of the gospel. Let's look at verse 26. I'm going to have to finish. So they notice that it happens and they call them out. Servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out, come out of the fire. Verse 27. And the satraps, prefects, and the governors, and all the people, they, they gather around to see. And they saw that the fire had, had not had any power over their bodies of those men. The, the hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. That is a miracle. If I'm just around a campfire for like one minute, I smell terrible for like ever. They were in this furnace and they don't even smell. Nothing was missing from them except the chains that bound them. It's the only thing that burned up. Now let's look at what happens. This promotion and worship or kind of worship from Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 20, 28, he blesses the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice this. He doesn't say, blessed be my God. He says, blessed be their God. He has a strange conversion process, apparently. He's being moved along. But at least he seems to respect their defiance. Because he's like, man, you had to. Because they're not going to worship anybody but God. He probably still thinks that there are other gods, but he's giving God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the highest level. The God most high. And so he makes this declaration in verse 29, um, again, showing how much, how far he still has to go. He basically says, hey, this, no one speak against this God. And if you do, uh, you're going to be torn limb, to, limb from limb. <laughs> so just because you have an encounter with God, a true miraculous encounter, doesn't mean you have a new heart. And he's, He's still thinking crazy thoughts. He's so violent. He's so aggressively violent. And we're going to see him be brought low more in the coming chapters. But note, notice how the, the chapter ends. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Does that sound familiar? Do you remember in chapter 2 what happened to Daniel? He was promoted. So in chapter 2 and chapter 3, both situations, you have evil men conspiring against God's people, trying to destroy them, but then what happens? It flips on them. And in fact, they get promoted even further. And I think that is just so beautiful at the power of God. Church, you may be going through a fire, but promotion may be right around the corner. And promotion may literally be a promotion at work, or it may mean a breakthrough in your marriage. Promotion may mean breakthrough in your depression. Promotion may be that God takes your life and you get to finally be with Jesus. Promotion is going to look like different things, but God is able to do that. And if he doesn't, we can say with this passage, God is able to promote me. But even if he doesn't, I'll worship him. So let me end with this reminder, church. Jesus is the Son of God who daily steps in to our furnaces with us. He can sympathize. He's right there with you, hurting with you. Right there, holding you, protecting you. And the only reason he can do that right now is because he did it once and for all in the eternal furnace for you. And so church, let's be faithful to God no matter what it costs us this week. And even if it turns out poorly for us, we'll still worship him, right? Because he's worthy.